Welcome to episode 626 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Rightio, team, welcome along to episode 626 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsom and Bevan James Oz. How you going, mate? I'm right, Bevan. How you doing over there? <laughs> it's a bit like that. It's a long it? way away from me. <laughs> We're in the new studios and I, I do need to get some new gear. So what I want to do, because we're basically in the lounge of the new place, and I want to get like a mic stand so we're going because the couches are normally a little bit closer yeah. we have to move the couch i've used these tables that we use for the runners on a saturday the camping tables camping tables yep and we've got microphone set up and he's he's on the yonder 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 i'm yonder. hunched over but we're, we're surviving we're coping <laughs> well next week hopefully if i get time to get the stands we'll be laying back like this john right and the stand will be here oh it's right. gonna be sensational but it's a lot it's a work in progress it is it wasn't number one on my list of things to get done this week Disappointing. Far from it. I'm talking proudly brought to you by Extreme Endurance, your lactic buffer, and our patrons. And a few we have got, we have got, we've got Ben Mystery Walton. What's Mister E? I'm not sure. He Maybe he's even got two nicknames. I've got Bradley Speedo Oldham and Paul the Hack Calder, who lives right. down the hill from you. He now oh. lives down there. I think he used to live. Across the hill now he lives down. You can actually probably throw you stones at his place. If, if, now, now, let's do all the update, John, because we come to the new house. We've got some pretty cool views at the new house. He's promising, the me, these morning, great, promising me these great views. How the views? You can almost, probably probably 50 metres visibility if that. Yep, if, if, if that. that. Before, it was probably two metres visibility. By the end of the show, you might actually, actually see Paul's house. Yeah, <laughs> might do. <laughs> what side of the hill is he on? Is he on the, if going up Hackthorn, is he on the right or left? I don't know. Because if he's on the right, there's a chance we can see him. Okay. So there we go. Anyway, uh, let's this week's show. We've got some news. We've got a discussion of the week. You didn't have a new one, so I came up with one, which I think is quite genius. Oh, okay. I did think of one this morning, but now I've forgotten it again. Okay, well, there you go. I've come up with a new one, there, which I think is quite genius. Uh, we've got a high five, and we've got an interview. With Nick Baldwin, a pro that recently won Ironman Philippines. Yeah, pretty cool photo of him coming out the finishing shoot. Uh, Winger of the Week, questions and answers at the end, and that's pretty much it. Before we get into the show, but we do have to say that we're releasing... Uh, Legends of Triathlon, either today or tomorrow, depending on how much time I get, uh, with Bob Abbott. Yes, so he has got uh, obviously the We Are Triathletes documentary coming out. He's uh, he narrates that, um, and but also most of you guys will have heard of Bob Babbitt. And I think you know what I was really conscious of when we were doing that interview is trying not to. You know, a lot of you guys will have heard stuff from Bob, but I kind of think we got a few new bits and pieces yeah. out of him, which was which was good. He's a pretty easy interview because you kind of ask a question and um, and then away he goes. To me, he's one of the, you know, when we, when we think of Ironman or triathlon as a sport, there's plenty of inspirational characters. And if we look mm. at the athletic side of it, there's the, the amazing pros and the Rick and Dick Hoyts and all the stories that we see every year. Um, but Bob is an inspiration, man, and, and so many levels. And, uh, and one of the things that he's proudest of is, is what he's done with the Challenge Athletes Foundation. We don't uh, even talk about that that much. No, and, uh, and you know, he's done a huge amount outside of that, but that's what you know, I think he wants his legacy to be known as is the Challenge Athletes Foundation. Not that he wants it known, but that's what I think he's got the most um, fulfilment out of. He's seriously 
one of the greatest people you, you'd ever meet. And, and like this interview will show a bit of this, but even just in the odd times when I've seen him out and about, you know, at races and stuff like that. And, you know, we know each other, say hello to, so he knows my face and we have a yarn. And every time you speak to him, he's just promoting someone who's doing something amazing. Mm. You know, it's never about him. Mm. It's, you know, and geez, the guy's pretty successful. Oh, you absolutely. know, look, look what he's done in his career and what he started and all the rest of it. So um, check it out. Legends of Triathlon will be up either today or tomorrow. But if you listen to a few days from now, will definitely be up. So let's get into some results. John, we had Lake Placid over the weekend. It was the all-females race, and Heather Jackson wasn't quite a dojo domination, but the second fastest time split that they've ever had there, and she pretty much killed it. She killed it. Um, what was interesting, she, I'm pretty sure she led out of the swim in terms of she yeah. led the, the female pros out of the swim. I'm sure there was possibly some age groupers that went quicker than her, um, but she swam one hour, 58 seconds, rode a 5.04, had a, and then ran a 3.08.29 to win in 9.18.49. Second place was Jen Annett, uh, or Jen yeah, Jen Ant from Canada um, in 9.33. And third was Sarah Piampiano, who came home with the fastest run of the day with a 3.07 to finish in 9.43. Looked like uh, pretty average conditions, at least for the bike. When I checked in a couple of times, it was windy and uh, and raining. <clears throat> it looked like it did clear from the times I checked on the run. But yeah, yeah, a bit of a, not quite a dojo domination, but Heather Jackson, she's uh, she's done this race before and you know, some people go maybe getting a little bit close to Kona, but it seemed to work for her pretty well the last couple of years. Well, she's pretty much got top five in Kona for the last three years, hasn't she? So mm. one question about this, John. This used to be the one that was female one year, male the next. Has mm. it actually stopped now as an all-female every year now? Uh, no, they, they, they move, move, move around. So, for example, last year I think was... Canada was the females okay. and Placid was the males. So this year, they, vice versa. It kind of, yeah, it kind of moves around a bit. Okay, well, so that's pretty much what I'm to hear there for smacking that out. Uh, coming up this weekend, we've got Ironman Hamburg happening and it's an interesting race actually because Tim Don's kind of coming along and he's, he's pretty much got his Kona slot, but, you know, he's got him and is Joe Skipper racing? Uh, his name's down on the list, so you never know at this t- stage of the season, but I'd be doubtful given he's done rote and also did uh, Ironman UK last weekend so look we've got three Ironmans coming up this weekend and uh, Jeez, you need to sort your phone out oh, I know. come to the new studios twice in the first five minutes your phone's gone <laughs> off and uh, so we've got three Ironmans this weekend we've got three fairly interesting participants you know one at each one first up you've got Tim Don racing in Hamburg so it's an $80,000 race so it's a lot better prize money than a number of the other Ironmans at this stage of the season a lot of the Ironmans I might go into this next week Prize money is getting pretty weak. There's some Ironmans now which is thirty thousand US prize money total. Yeah. Uh, a lot that are only forty, and I know that overall prize money will be increasing as a total prize pool because there's so many more races on. It's but in terms of up. but yeah, in terms of the ra- races, it's pretty poor. Anyway, at Hamburg, it's not too bad. It's eighty thousand dollars US. Uh, so Tim Don making his return. Now we've seen him race and win a seventy point three fairly recently. Uh, so whether he's back to 80%, 90%, 100%, we'll have to wait and see. Um, you know, this time last year he was a serious, serious Kona contender for you know the podium, what was the race if that he not the win. Before was it South Africa last year? No, tech, uh, I think it was Texas. No, it was Brazil yeah. when he when he set a so-called world record, which I'm not going to mention any more world records. It's course records, uh, but yeah, 
It'll be really interesting to see how he goes. James Karnama, who we interviewed over and wrote, he's uh, defending champion and he's expected to come in 30 seconds quicker than Tim Don. Um, but he's also- got another month behind him after Rote. Like, you know, going mm. into Rote, he had the injury spell, he had that kind of sickness spell. Um, it, you know, another month under the belt. Yeah, so, and then Bart Arnott's, who won challenge wrote last year so you know decent feel whether or not Jill, joe skipper turns up will clark pretty sure he had a d i think it was a dnf uh, fairly recently i think it was ironman uk or it was some somewhere recent so he's going to need some points um yes overall you know good 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 field brian mccrystal's listed down there as seated number 12 uh, as you said it's um and then on the female side of things uh then you've got hallie fredrickson who was the recent itu world long distance champ expected to come in 30 seconds ahead of sarah crowley and uh daniela seemler who won wrote is in there as well so Really solid females field. We also got Corinne Abraham, Anya Baranek, uh, and a bunch of other f- fantastic females in this. So should be a really good males race and a really good females race. I wonder why Arnold didn't go back to Rote. You know, because Rote challenge and it's the Amaki event. A winning challenge is pretty significant, and B they're pretty good at looking after the people who win their races. Like one thing that Challenge have always done really well is if you kind of win a race in their world, they look after you to stay in their world. It's really fascinating he didn't turn up. Um, maybe he ne- I haven't looked at where he's at in the rankings, but maybe he needs Kona points. Um, wouldn't yeah. wouldn't surprise me if that was um, the it's, overrider it's good, good reason. Justification, but it's just interesting, isn't it? You'd think if you could, you would. Um, just looking at some of the points right now, Jombo? Uh in terms of Tim, Tim Don, um, so Tim Don, yeah, in terms of where he's ranked, because he had such a good race at 70.3 Worlds last year and finishing, I think it was third place behind Gomez and Ben Canute, he got huge points for that. And so he didn't race Kona and has only done 170.3. Obviously, he didn't race Kona because he had his, his accident. But because of that, he's got really he's got good points. And so he pr- could probably scrape in by literally just finishing. He's currently sitting in uh, 58th position. Um, last year, uh, the number of points he has now, 2,930, is almost enough to get in there. But he's currently only sitting 58th. So if he does want to be inside that top 40, which is the cutoff point uh, from, from next week, Week, then he needs to finish and, and get a few points and uh, and move up into the top 40. Okay, we've also got Ironman Switzerland coming up this weekend. And the interesting point here at Ironman Switzerland is the debut of Barbara Riveros, assuming she is going to race. Now, she recently had a close finish at ITU Worlds, I think it was. Uh, so this, I assume, is her Ironman debut. Uh, so she's a former very good ITU athlete. Um, how and she's also done very, very well at Xterra. So whether or not she can cross that across to the full iron distance, you know, but but further than the ITU long distance champs, she could be a pretty pretty serious contender. And she's one of those athletes, you know, very good runner. So she could be, you know, twenty plus minutes down off the bike and still be in contention. But really good females field with uh, Kaiser Sali backing up from Rote, Annabelle Luxford who's also backing up from I think ITU World Long Distance Champs, Lisa Roberts, uh, and a good sized female field. You got, you know, around about twenty athletes on the start list. And um, and then the, on the, the male side there's you know a few athletes that are going to be scrambling for points, some that are just there to to try to win more races. You've got Cam Worth who's I think probably going 
going for a record number of pro uh, iron distance performances this year, uh, lining up again after Rote, after uh, what was it, France the week before that. Uh, you've also got Mike Phillips, who's right on that cusp of making um, Kona or not, so he needs a few Is more right few the points. Or the, 50, or the 50? Uh, you check out the rankings. He, he's, he's right on the cusp of whether he makes it or not. And Andy Boucherer, who had a DNF in Ironman Germany, has got hardly any points at all. So he's really going to need to win this and probably uh, bank a few more points elsewhere as well. And uh, along with Ronnie Shieldnick, Rudy Wild. So really, you know, there's some really good racing this weekend. Good, strong fields. Okay. Uh, what's up next, John? I'm looking for the rankings. And then finally, we have Ironman Canada. And uh, uh, last year, last year Lindsay Corbin won it. It was a females only race. The year before that, Andy Potts won it in eight hours and twenty minutes and twenty three seconds. Uh, the word on the street, uh, well, not word on the street, word on the Google is that it's going to be bloody hot up there and probably going to be a non wetsuit swim. Oh, really? Um, forecast to be thirty two degrees centigrade, which is toasty. Uh, again, you know. Good solid field with a few little twists in there. You've got Brent McMahon seated number one, come in in 8 hours 18. But the wily old veteran Marino van Holnacker might say have something to say about that, as would Jeff Simons. So those top three there are all sort of former championship winners. Uh, and then you've got Matt Russell on the comeback, come, um, Callum Millwood, Mark, Paul Matthews and Mark Bosted. So again, good, good strong field. Okay, Mike Phillips. Oh, is and then sorry, the one other thing, the interesting aspect of this race is going to be Andrew Talansky, who I've mentioned once or twice before, former very good Tour de France rider. He's done some seventy point threes so far this season without you know blowing anybody's socks off in terms of his bike splits or overall finish. And I did note that he's one of the athletes that they're doing you know the road to sort of Kona um, like qualifying for Kona. Um, Profiles. I noted he was on there, Sarah True, and then you've got a bunch of um, different Ironman athletes. So some of them are not going to potentially make it, and he's probably going to be one of them. But it'll be interesting to see if he does turn up, um, what sort of debut he can have over the, the full iron distance. So Mike Phillips is currently at 47th in the rankings. Um, so he wouldn't make the first cut off unless he has a great race this weekend. He's on 3,390 points. Uh, probably would make the cutoff with that number race. of points because you have the, the number of athletes inside the top 40 who have automatic oh, slots. Okay. So it probably would roll to him, but then more people are going to get points this weekend, which might bump him down. So I think he'll need to get some points. Okay, there you go. Mike Phillips there. Uh, so you've talked about Canada. I have indeed. Uh, the Outlaws. So they've got the Outlaw happening, and you've got here the price in the Outlaw is £299. Uh, pound, uh, which is basically about $120 to $100 cheaper than Ironman. I think oh, the one thing, I was, as I read that this morning, John, I thought, does it really matter? Uh, well, it's a point of difference. You know, I think uh, a lot of people pay for the Ironman brand, pay the extra because it is the Ironman brand. Uh, so, But the Outlaw's got a great reputation. Oh, it really has. Um, we so always get great feedback from everyone after the race saying it's just... An amazing race. They put on a really great race. So it's over in Nottingham in the UK. So if you want to go to a non-branded race, go check it out. Um, but good on the Outlaw for consistently delivering and... And they get good numbers too. It's not just like mm. some small race. No. It, it gets... It's a proper long-distance triathlon, isn't it? Current course record, 839.37 for the males and 944 for the females. Record for the team's race, 7 hours 47. Nice. 
Nice. Uh, we've got some other kind of random events happening this weekend. We have indeed. Uh, we have got uh, the Extreme Man in Hungary. Good luck to everybody doing the Extreme Man. Go that race extreme. has been around every year for a long, long time. John's IT update. This coming up this weekend, we've got Edmonton, the sprint and mixed relays happening again. It's a sprint time of year, isn't it? It is, and they always do sprints when they back it up with a mixed relay. So they always only have either one or two days maybe between them. A little bit different when they went to the UK this year. So it's the third mixed relay of the year. They had Nottingham, they've had Hamburg, which was the weekend before last, and now um, going over to Edmonton. There's also another ITU just... Oh, that's the third time. That's not my phone. What's that then? My house is beeping. Bevan's John. discovering things about his house. What is that? Who knows? It was just some some random ringing. Sorry, John. I got it wrong. So anyway, um, so Edmonton is on this weekend, a sprint distance race. Um, disappointment for me is no Cassandra Bogrand, who was the sensation from the last round in Hamburg, where she crushed all those female athletes uh, it would have been really interesting to see her back up because she has also uh, won one of the French Grand Prix races beating a lot of the top contenders so a bit of a shame that she's not racing um, on the male side of things you've got all the, the usual contenders you've got Mario Mola, Vincent Louis, Richard Murray, Jake Burt Whistle uh, so all the good contenders there you've got a field size of uh, 56 and then on uh, Jonathan Brownlee's going to be in there as well so interesting to see if he carries on his sort of upward trajectory um, on the females you got again this is that's the thing with the ITU you get quality fields every time they rock up you've got Katie Zaveris Rachel Klamer Vicky Holland Kirsten Casper um, along with a bunch of others non-Stanford etc so go your good things over there and uh, put on a good show as well as the mixed relay and you've got to remember it's Olympic qualifying time, so uh, points are starting to matter for countries and individuals. So we look at the Olympics and the Tokyo 2020 Games, the, the dates for the triathlons have been announced. The men's will take place on Monday the 27th of July. The women's will take place on Tuesday the 28th. And then they have a couple of days before they start, which will be on uh, Saturday the 1st of August will be the mixed triathlon. So that works well, doesn't it? Because you've got the Olympic distance. It's not like sprint and then team. It's actually Olympic. Give them a few days rest and then smack out the teams. It is, yeah. I, I assume they won't, wouldn't change the distance between now and Tokyo, given it's not oh, that you, far you away. you think there could be a chance of a sprint? I don't think there will, but I just wonder, would there... Have Maybe that, if they had time restrictions, they would have. Mm. But the fact that they can go from Tuesday through to Saturday, it's plenty of rest, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I think the one thing for me is, uh, this feels like it's earlier in the year than, than normally when you have the Olympics. So I th- kind of think you're normally more into... August, August yeah. the latter part of August. But anyway, July 27th and 28th for the Olympic and August the 1st for the mixed relay. Lock it in your diaries. Okay, make your pick right now for the teams. For the right teams now, race? Right now, John. Uh, I'd go America. For? For the mixed relay. Okay. Probably America, France and Great Britain would be battling it out. So Great Britain is dominant? Was what, you know, if they'd done the, the last Olympics, you would have put Great Britain? Uh, yes, yes. Given you got You've first and third in the males and uh, third and fourth in the females. So, yes, I would say that. But what we're starting to see more and more is you're starting to see a bit more specialization in the mixed relay. Oh, you and are. so you might not necessarily always have the exact same athletes. Because the mixed relay, are, you, of course, at the very, very top, your athletes are probably going to cross over. But it's if a the, different race, but isn't it? It's a sprint. It's different. It's, it's full noise. What's the distance in the mix? Um, 300 meter swim, 8k bike, 1.5k run. So it is 
full noise and and so yeah, it's full noise isn't it yeah so for those top few that'd be good enough you know in terms of making the transition across people like Vincent Louis for France and so on but for some of the other countries you know they might like America they seem to be especially on the male side of it favoring bringing in specialists because they don't have those guys that are potentially say top five athletes and um, their, their, their top athletes may be sort of normally ranked 10 to 20 and then they've got other guys that might finish in the 30s but they're better at short distance stuff so you are starting to see some uh, specialization i want you to make a controversial pick who's the itu olympic distance athlete who's pretty bloody great but won't get picked for the country oh i'd have in to the mixed on the mixed relay yeah um, because the sprint you know they might just kind of not i quite have that top end oh i'd potentially yeah, you'd say Jonathan Brownlee would still still get in. Hey, Alistair. Um, he's not racing anymore. Oh, is he? he can't. Is w- it f- for the Olympics? No. Alistair's retired. Well, he hasn't retired, but he's sort of hasn't. No, he's 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 sort of well, hasn't hasn't made up his mind yet. But I think he's going along by all accounts. Huh. Yeah, yeah. Keep up with the news, Bevan. I do it every week. Well, really, when we <laughs> talk about Alistair Brownlee saying he's not racing anymore. No, he's still he's he's focused more on long distance stuff. He's passed. He's had, he's had his day in the sun. Oh wow! You okay? Here we go. Pack it up. This is news to me. Never in our news have we said Alistair Brownlee has has pulled the plug. I don't think it's official. I think it's a John Newsom statement. So he hasn't pulled it. the plug. He's focusing on long distance stuff. Once you go long, you ain't going back. Once you go long, you never. He going ain't back. going back unless unless it was. We like haven't a, seen him do much that much long yet. He's injured the whole time. That's why. Yeah. When he goes long, when he races, he absolutely spanks it. Uh, but we, but the rest of the time, he's so you're seems guaranteeing we're not going to see the Tokyo Olympics. I'm not guaranteeing. Oh, well, you just anything, said he retired ten seconds think ago. But I it would be highly unlikely. But you see the mixed relay. Yeah, you no, that's what I'm saying. Who's the controversial one? He would go? not make the mixed relay. He's not going to make the mixed relay unless the rest of the UK athletes are a bunch of chumps, which they're not. <laughs> you're putting your see, I'm not. Today. No, did I? The, the UK and apparently Alistair Brownlee's retired. All right. <laughs> We have a Monday course accuracy checker. We've only had one. Dave Greyhound, the speedster, gave us a bit of a course check on Lake Placid. Now it was when I put the email out. The race was actually still in progress, not the email. The um, once I put the Facebook comments out, uh, but it looked pretty accurate to me. Had a four thousand. He got four thousand and twenty-seven meters in the swim. So either, either Dave swam long or it was a long course. 111.9 on the bike, so very accurate, and 26.1 on the run. Nice work, Ironman Lake Placid. Judging off N equals 1, you did very well on the distances. Well done, Ironman Lake Placid. John, let's do a sponsor, because we've got a great email through this week. Email through from, who was it from? It was from good old Christina Ament, and it's just got, I've been a listener since 2014 when I met you in Kona and just wanted to pass along a quick race report. I was a part of the four tandem team with a blind Stokers that recently completed Race Across America, Team C to C, race in at sea as in uh, the ocean. The ocean sea division. Uh, raced to raise awareness of the dismal unemployment rate among blind people and to showcase the fact that blind people are capable of almost anything if given a chance. Of course, I also race because I love riding my bike. I wanted to give a shout out to all the folks at Extreme Endurance because Extreme Endurance and Fuel 
R5 Plus were a huge part of my successful nutrition strategy and kept me going day and night for 7 days, 15 hours and 3 minutes. Thank you very much for an awesome show and I look forward to it every Monday. So that's pretty cool, isn't it? Right, right across America, man. That's where you want your extreme endurance. Exactly. So she was fueling with Fuel 5 Plus and, uh, and the regular extreme endurance. So nice work, extreme endurance, on getting or helping Christina Armand across the country. And uh, yeah, we did meet her. So she's a blind athlete. She's a lawyer from memory. Yeah, and good memory. And when she did it, she was, uh, I, I'm, I, she did it with the Jandal, the Jandal girl. Um, 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 Anne, 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 Anne Thiles, yeah, Anne Thiles, Anne Thong Thiles. Thong Thiles yeah. uh, they did Kona together one of the years, and we were over there. So nice work, Christina, on that. Nice work, Extreme Endurance, on helping to fuel these to, guys. Uh, like it'd be really cool just thinking of the blind athlete. You know, because one of the nice things about cycling for us visually, people who can't see, is that, you know, the visual experience of riding. But, you know, your senses are totally different when you're blind. And imagine what the experience like is just riding along. Mm-hmm. And just because, you know, the temperature, the wind, you know, your body's so much more aware of those you're things. You're giving me ideas, Bevan. Back it up. You. <laughs> what are you thinking? Yeah, I don't know if I want to go there. We're, we're going to blindfold you and I'll be your guide. Okay, thanks a lot. <laughs> I'm not sure I trust this. Exactly. <laughs> you Come pissed, here. You pissed me off. Oops, there's a lamppost. Sorry. Late call. I read a book. Someone once gave me the book of the guy who was the world record blind runner. His times were smoking. Like oh, his times bet. were impressive. But he was talking just about how, you know, there's just always a risk of falling. And, mm. um, and yeah, man, it's just so many kind of different things that we don't have to consider because visually we don't have that problem. But, you know, like I imagine Christina has this pretty awesome experience of riding a bike and in ways that we're just not aware of because we because our visual almost mm. takes it away from us and Absolutely. so well done christina awesome work. and obviously extreme endurance is if you are going to do that big training block and that and fuel five plus is a good strategy if you're going to do like an epic camp or a big training weekend what you get out of the fuel five plus it's got the caffeine built in there so for, for you know christina going through you know probably a bit of sleep deprivation and uh and you know having to get on and off the bike lots and lots of times that caffeine's going to give you that nice kick so check it out xendurance.com use the promo code imtalk20 and if you've got any little testimonials send them through to us it's great for extreme endurance uh, we know we believe in their product and uh uh, and also they've you know they've contributed a lot to the show. So check it out, xendurance.com. I'm getting a glute workout over here sitting in this couch, Bevan, and having to crouch over my yeah, microphone. I'm always trying to get you fit. Yeah. Like, no, you've been slack a bit lately. So mm. I was just, you know, I was like, you know, how'd the race go? The race went okay, we'll go over that shortly. Okay, oh shortly. Yeah. Just for the record, weather update, a bit more view now. Oh we've got it. You've probably got a maybe a kilometre visibility yeah, if can that. you see down there, can you see that little pond down there? Can you see that over there? On the, I, on the ground? I, can, I cannot. Oh, there's a development happening on the ground down there. Yeah. And it seems like a bit of a disaster. Oh, no. Because for the last six months, you're right. You want to just move your table out a little bit? Oh, oh, yeah, I've got to make sure I've got enough volume coming into this microphone. Uh, I'll spread right. my legs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this week's discussion. So, John wanted to know how do you find your mongrel when you're racing? And he kind of put some context around us. He said, um, um, especially if you're going into a race and you're feeling, yeah, coming out of a race when you've been a bit of a mentally a bit of a soft cock and you've yeah. sort of given up or had made excuses and for, like, i think we shouldn't have used the word mongrel for finn swager helped us out here um because some people said that mongrel they weren't quite sure what we we're talking about now we're supposed to be an animal so a mongrel in new zealand at least means a dog that's kind of been bred with lots of different 
breeds yep. and so it's a mongrel it's kind of you know it's not very kind of classy and often comes with a little bit of inner anger yes like, it's a kiwi Which expression it's Kiwi, uh, Finn, Finn replied to Mark, Mick Simpson's, he put mongrel, question mark. Mongrel is a Kiwi expression, I believe, kind of meaning your inner beast, aggressive side. Good point. Look up mongrel mob and you'll get <laughs> the idea. <laughs> it's one of our big motorcycle gangs in New Zealand. It's not a good representation of our country. No. Uh, so Richard Swanee Noah's got, I think, back to suffering through the Christchurch Marathon. <laughs> this is, I love this answer. So he's got, I think... Back to suffering through the Christchurch Marathon in 2010 in sub-zero weather and still beating John Newsom. To think that there was always a silver line keeps me going. It's disappointing that that's a claim to fame. But <laughs> having, having said that, that was my initial response. But then I thought, I do the same thing yeah, do you? <laughs> with, with Phuket. You know, so, somebody else having a, a substandard race, me having an exceptional race. I'll just hang on to that forever. Yep. That yeah, I've never heard you repeat Phuket. Really? Yeah. Ah. Uh, that 2010 marathon was miserable. A, it was a miserable performance by me, uh, and I was in quite good shape, but miserable weather. It was one of those days where it was, it was, it was, average, it was average weather to start. It was okay, but then it kind of warmed up a little bit, and so you kind of derobed. You know when you get really hot in a marathon? Derobed. Well, and I took off a, uh, you know, I had polypropyl on, took it off. I think I chucked it to Belinda or chucked it to somebody, and then this big weather change came through, and it was horrendous. I was pretty much hypothermic at the finish. It was not fun. Well, uh, that, that year, remember when barefoot running was all the thing? Yes. You know, there was a moment where barefoot running, you know what my theory in life is now, John? Yes. Any new fad, say 10 years from now, yeah. I'll assess it. Yeah. Because <laughs> what is it? Intermittent fasting is yeah. the big yeah. thing right now. Everyone's yeah. intermittent fasting and, you know, it's paleo 10 years. You know, it's, you know, the, the barefoot running. Mm-hmm. And it was like, everyone came, oh, this is judging. And I remember that day, there was a guy doing the, he was doing a marathon in bare feet. Mm. And he was a big, you know, he wasn't an athlete. Mm. He wasn't like a young, lean, mean machine. He was probably 6'4", mm. not fat, but definitely, you know, carrying a few too many pounds and doing barefoot running. And I was thinking, this guy is a schmuck. <laughs> uh, okay, so we've also got uh, jo-, jo Nebo. And she's got, sorry, I, have, I don't have a mongrel. Never have and never will. I do, however, enjoy every moment in a race and extremely grateful just to be able to participate. No mongrel necessary. Well, that's very positive, Joe. Joe was over. We're looking in, for your angry answers. Yeah, yeah. she was over in uh, in road. She had a bit of mongrel, I think, to get through that race. Uh, Layla Porteous. Um, that no matter the result, if I don't give my all and dig deep, then I won't have done all the hours of training and the investment any justice. I've also had a couple of races where I've got on the podium and last year got a Kona slot. Nice, nice work. By a matter of seconds. Ooh. If I had not kept fighting, the outcome could have been different and that makes me find my mongrel in every race. So, such a good point and so much more important these days that you do find your mongrel because seconds matter and you don't know where you are. It's not sprint finishes anymore no. because of the rolling start. Yeah. If you don't push all the way to the finish... You've got to keep the pressure on yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lynette Warren has, Warren has got, I, I ask myself, when I finish, would I look back at my race knowing I gave it all or did I finish with more in the tank and keep saying be in the moment? So that's how she does it. Totally agree with you, Lynette. The, the main thing is whenever you finish a race, you've got to be able to look yourself in the mirror and go, did I give it my best effort on yeah. the day? And if it was a shit result, at least you will have got something out of it by putting in your best effort. I'm going to add some context to that when we get to our thoughts on this. Simon Lunn, 
never even had half a mongrel when racing. Well, there you go. You need to find your mongrel, Simon. Uh, Michael Rayan's got, I think about uh, how I will view myself the next day and see if I think I will be proud of what I did in the crunch time or will I be making an excuse for why I backed down. Basically, sham myself into pushing harder. Lucy Francis, I used a Buddhist mantra. Oh, this, back it up. This too shall pass. Nice. I also think that back to, to the time as a kid when bullies used to steal my hat and run away. I could never catch them. How different it would be now. Yeah, you'd smash that cap in their face. That's when the mongrel comes out. Good old Mike Matthew Jackson. It's Wolverine, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I wear a pair of budgie smuggler speedos. Uh, you don't want to be on the course longer than you need to be in them. Cool. Mark, finally, Mark Funkster Brooks, when teaching my students PT. I think the nickname we gave him. I think it was. And he's actually officially made it his. Yeah, we've had a few do, do that. Yeah, I think it could be. Um, when teaching my students PT, I point out that pain, their feeling stops when they stop moving. So it's not permanent, so push on. If you're going back to a race, then it should hold no surprises for you and give you markers to gauge how you're doing or to aim for. Okay, John. Uh, what do you? How do you bring it yet? Well, I had to try to find my mongrel because the last couple of race running races that I've done, granted they've been low key, really low priority, like at best C races, probably more like D to E races. Um, but I came away with them a bit disappointed that I wasn't actually able to fight a little bit more um, when the crunch came on, sort of two two thirds of the way through the through the race, and so had another race last weekend, and I was you know a bit more determined to give a bit more fight. And have a bit of a think about why I hadn't actually performed that well in the previous races. And what I kind of boiled down for, for me was really went into those races without a plan, pretty unorganised. And I was more there for my kids just to sort of get a run. And then I kind of rock up and just do a run and, and just wasn't didn't have my head in the game. So for me, what works really well is A, to have a plan. And blows me away when you go to lots of races and athletes don't actually have a plan for their race. And this is their A race. Like these were D, E, F races, um, but having a plan. So first thing is knowing the course and how you're going to plan to tackle it. So for example, we had a cross-country race at the weekend and knowing the course before I went in, knowing how many laps I was supposed to be doing, um, knowing that you know that what I was going to focus on on the little uphill bits, on the little downhill bits, it was muddy parts, how I was going to tackle the, the crossings just gave me um, a bit more confidence rather than just winging it on the day and having my processes ready. So um, I've got my running group here on, on Mondays and I'm always drumming into them technique and a couple of the girls who are out there racing at the weekend, you know, yelled a couple of things at them and as soon as you say some technique orientated feedback, you just see people's body positions just change and they just smoked it past people and one of the athletes good old Gail Harvey Hayward you know Gail she just yelled out one thing to me when I was um, running and I thought yeah boom Away that, that gave me a nice little um, edge. So having having some processes around technique for when the hurt comes on and and for me it's about um, being really aware that when you're starting to get lazy so recognising you know if you're starting to slack and starting to make excuses actually just being thoughtful, going, oh, shit, I'm, I'm being a bit of a slacker here, and then, boom, so going back into around my... thoughts that take you away from the Yeah, strength. so, you know, if you're in that moment and you're running along and you just your mind starts wandering, just catching yourself doing it, and then, boom, going into your processes that you've thought about, whether that be technique, whether it be but, but, a pacing but, but, but plan. Your answer's good, but you haven't really given us the mongrel. What well, that, that's the mongrel? what gives me the mongrel is, is you know, in other races, you know, you start making excuses and start, oh, that guy's 20 metres in front of me, oh, I'll just let it go today. But 
when I'm in a race now, like last weekend, and if, if that thought came into my mind, then I would have pre-planned all these processes and that would have given me the mongrel and the fight to actually carry on. So I kind uh, of look at it in two ways. I, I, I actually, no, I've got to do one more. Oh, okay, sorry. Um, be, and being ready to hurt and look forward to it because yeah. those other races, again, go into them and not be looking forward to getting hurt. So when the hurt comes on, you kind of, I wasn't really ready for it and just, again, started making excuses. So being ready to hurt and looking forward to it. So I kind of look at it in two ways. I kind of go, first of all, and your answer is a lot about kind of what I'd say comes under this category is how do you delay the moment you need mongrel? Um, and so ultimately you should have a really great strategy that kind of, you're, it, you, you race based on your ability. You know, mm-hmm. you know, there might be a bit, a bit more in a race. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you might be able to get a little bit more out of yourself in a race, but really it should be around a plan that's realistic around your ability. Um, so you're not being an idiot and you're kind of just going to blow up pretty quickly. So, you know, and if we look at a race in any kind of race, there's a moment where the race gets hard. Uh, and if you've raced wisely, then hopefully that's, that should be pretty close to the end. So a lot of what John's come into there is those things that are going to help you run wisely that gives yourself the opportunity at the end to show a bit of mongrel that's going to give you that last bit to push you through. So, you know, it is that process-driven thinking. It is technique. It is, um, you know, using your pace strategies and all those things. Uh, And then when it comes in a mongrel, and so to me it's kind of like in that moment where you want to give up, what pushes you through and, and you know and, and a mongrel is often and mongrel probably isn't the best word because you kind of looks at says well how do you find aggression to get through that and it's not necessarily aggression but to me it's that kind of what's that switch that allows you to go to a deeper level of hurt um and makes you desire that deeper level of hurt and for me i kind of think that for me and this is kind of going back quite a few layers but i always the thing i love in life is this kind of search for a deeper self uh, it was the reason I the sport was always mm-hmm. I want to do Ironman because I want to find a higher level of self. And to me, you know, like as the way I grow as a person, I always try to think of what are my core values. And like for me, it's like growth, freedom, honesty, things like this. And that the way I live my life should be helping me discover higher levels of those things. So things like growth and honesty and freedom and things like that. I'm trying to live my everyday life in a way that helps me discover higher levels of those. So racing or challenging yourself with exercise is such a great opportunity to to explore those moments. And actually, when we wrote, the day Mm. after the race, I went for a run and um, I had to do... I think I had a 10k, mm-hmm. and I did. The, I just cruised the first half, and then in the second half, I thought to myself, "Oh, let's see if I can do get under 40 minutes," which I think I had to average maybe 3:45. So it wasn't that crazy fast, but um, and the last couple of k's, I had to do like a 3:20 or something like that, which you know I haven't been running a lot lately, so it was a pretty good challenge. And I got to I got to the point where I knew I was going to be under 40 minutes, mm-hmm. and I had a couple hundred meters to go, and I could have cruised. And in that moment, I was like, no, but the reason I'm doing this is to find a higher level of self. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I want to experience a deeper level of hurt in that moment. So for me, in that moment of real challenge where there's a kind of two paths where you can take the user option. And don't get me wrong, there's many times where I've taken the user options, but it's that kind of, this is why I'm here. And this is a chance for me to evolve and get a deeper understanding of a deeper level of self. You know, and, and for me, that really triggers me. And in that run... I really sprinted out the last kind of couple hundred meters and I was dying, but that's the reward. Mm. And so for me, it's that kind of the reason I put myself in this position in life is to try to find this moment and then to see who I am in this moment and then to really go for it in this moment. And it's interesting actually, because did you watch the Richie McCaw documentary? Yes. Yeah. And Richie McCaw, so for those who don't know, Richie McCaw was 
the greatest rugby player of all time, really. Um, you love your bloody greatest of oh, all he, time. Come on, he's the goat. He was amazing in his era. He's the greatest of all time. Um, come on, how many? How many Colin how, how Meads. Many people was he better than Colin Meads? Yep, I reckon he is. Okay. Yep, I do think he is. Yep. Um, uh, but anyway, the, 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 Richie McCaw is a really boring character. Like, if, you know, like I'm not really interested in the man. Mm-hmm. And um, But the documentary was actually a really good documentary. And some of the things they showed you was Harry worked for a sports psychologist who's a Christchurch guy, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things they talked about is that in life, I seek challenge because it's a chance for me to, live, to feel total self-expression of self. You know, that I want to find the hardest challenge and I want to see who I am in that moment. But ultimately, I just want to be the real me in that moment. And that's kind of a philosophy I've always tried to, you know, when I saw that, I thought, oh, that's kind of how I try to approach things. Mm-hmm. And to me, it's that in that moment of hurt, in that moment of struggle, my inner mongrel is I'm just trying to find a deeper self. Now, again, it's not that I get it right every time. There's many times where I haven't, but seeking that moment, searching for that moment, and seeing who I am in that moment is kind of what it does it for me. There you go. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, this week's discussion. Oh, d- just before we move on, given you brought up rugby. Yeah. Um, the greatest of all time, Richie McCall. Well, no, we're, we, New Zealand are currently... World 15s champions, male and female, and over the weekend, World 7s rugby, male and female champions. We are the best at all forms of rugby. That's right. So Not rugby league, rugby union. Rugby league, the Aussies are pretty bloody good. We even lost to the Tongans in the Fiji in the rugby league, so let's not go there. Uh, this week's discussion. Now, <coughs> interestingly, John, I put a similar question on my Facebook page this morning, and uh, the question is, who is the person who has shown the biggest, the biggest commitment to your development as a triathlete and what have they done to help that has helped you? And interestingly, I put this, I put a similar question on my Facebook page today. So I'm going to pull up my Facebook page and it's really blown me away with the answers because it's um, revealing and it's not what I want to get from you guys. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, so I put on Facebook, who has shown the great biggest commitment to your growth in life? And everyone's pretty much come back and said me. And, and I kind of get that. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like I get that you've worked hard on growing yourself. It's it's a really interesting thing, John. Is that success? Are you saying you as in Bevan or me yeah, as yeah, in yeah me as right. in you know like yeah. I've shown the greatest level of commitment to myself. Right. So like I've, I put that up about three hours ago, and about twenty people have come up, and ninety percent of the people have said me, and then a couple of people have mentioned other people, mm. and I get it. Everyone's worked hard to achieve goals, mm. you know, and um. It's interesting when you think about success, is that often when we look at people who are successful, they claim their success, mm-hmm. but there's so many other people around them who have been a part of their success, and I was, I've got to be a little bit honest, I'm a little bit disappointed in the answers I've got on my Facebook page here, because mm-hmm. it's, there's nothing wrong with people saying, hey, I've worked really hard to be successful, but I guarantee there's been people along your way, mm-hmm. Like you look at young athletes, there's adults around them mm-hmm. who... These kids don't know. These people are trying to develop them, trying mm. to grow. You look at what you're doing with your triathlon club. Mm. You know, if you're younger athletes, you and your adults around there are trying to grow these kids. Now, when these kids are successful, they probably think, I've worked really hard. Mm. They don't necessarily acknowledge the people who have been around them. And, and I guarantee that all of us have had mentors and maybe people have looked on us from the outside and maybe in a very organized way, mm-hmm. but maybe just in life who have really helped us grow and shown a commitment to our development that maybe we'd never seen. And so the question that for the show is, 
So you um, don't want people to say Bevan James Isles on the outside here. And well, I no, get, you could say me because <laughs> I would be being an outside influence. Yeah. But, but it wasn't, I'm not doing this for me, but what I'm meaning is I want you to look at your world and go, actually, this person's been a big part of my mm. like, my success or my journey mm-hmm. and I've shown commitment. It could be your parents, it could be your partner, it might be someone in your triathlon club, could you be a workmate who shows a lot of interest. Um, so if you put me... I'm angry at you. <laughs> and we'll probably all get some me's because people will see this on Facebook yeah. before they listen to the show. And I guarantee they'll probably go delete it after the fact. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this week's discussion is, who is the person who's shown the biggest commitment to your development as a triathlete and what have they done that's helped you? Bevan? One, I, two, no, three. no, no. I need to investigate the new residence toilets. Oh, well, look, there's one right there. Oh my goodness. Yep, yep. It's like an so, ensuite to the lounge. Yep, ensuite to the lounge. And it's even got a shower, which will never be used. So there we go. <laughs> I'll push pause and you can go to the toilet. John's back, and we've just realised I'm stalking the fillinator. Oh, yep. yep. You'd have to have a pretty good arm to, to throw a stone at Phil's, Phil's place from Let's here. Let's try. <laughs> Let's go. Try. Uh, okay, so where are we, John? One, two, three, four. Ha five. John, this is a good one. Yeah, I was just thinking yesterday, you know, for, for athletes, if you lose your nutrition in the middle of a race, say for example you're fueling yourself on infinite or um, some high carbohydrate drink and you lose it, are you actually going to be capable of thinking on the fly as how you're going to redo your new, your race plan? I mean, of course you could stop and pick up your bottle, but let's say your bottle smashes open on the ground and all or your... Or you don't know it's happened. Or yeah, and all your, say you've got a bottle full of gels or whatever. Um, are you actually going to have a, a plan in place? It's one of those what-if situations to actually make sure that you get the re- your required amount of nutrition in. So what I thought I'd do is a high five on the carbohydrate content of things that you want to find on the course. But as part of that, you're going to actually need to know how much carb you're going to be taking in each hour of the race. So here we go. So wait a second. So... Do that context again. So, say for example, you've you've got yeah. You've lost your gels. My my circumstance. I've got a a bottle of Infinite on my bike, and it's got uh, however many scoops of Infinite in there. And so, I might just put the scoops in there, and not I actually know how much I'm putting in. But some people might just go, I'm going to do ten scoops of Infinite, and that's going to get me through the bike. They might not actually realise the carbohydrate content of that, whether it's. 200 grams of carbohydrate, 400 grams of carbohydrate, 500 grams of carbohydrate. So you need to have a clue on what your hourly intake is, not just what you're having, but actually the carbohydrate content. Some people might go in the race, I'm going to have, you know, going to go a gel every 45 minutes or a gel every half hour, but different gels are a little bit different. And, and so it's, it's first part of this is actually going, taking a step back and going, do I actually know what I'm doing with my nutrition? And then the second part is, if I lose that nutrition, do I have okay. a backup so it's plan? So it's not necessarily if you lose your nutrition, it's like, okay, how much of the foods that, of the options are going to be on the course mm. do you want to be aiming to take to replace what you've lost mm. okay. it's certainly not an ideal situation because you're not going to be having exactly what you want but sometimes you just got to improvise uh, on the fly mm. so number one a gel now again with all these things this is just approximate numbers but most of them are about the same so gels are between 20 and 30 grams of carbohydrate most of them um, are around about sort of 23, 24. I think a, like a, a goo gel, which is what you're going to find a lot of the time on courses, is 23 grams of carbs in most of them. And if you're on the course and you get to an aid station, you want to stop and grab a lot, don't you? Well, especially if you're, fla- if you're flavour specific, because um, you might not know what, what you're going to but get. you also want to know you've got them. You yes. don't want to stop at every aid station and grab a gel. Yeah, no, I'd be st- I, as you said, I'd be stopping and 
getting several yeah. gels uh, and just chucking them in your pockets. If you've got pockets, you might not have pockets. Yeah. You might not have any means to carry them. So a great picture. I think it was Brett. Wah! Chan might oh, have nice. taken it over and wrote. And old, doing the old school gels, somebody had about 15 gels the taped bike. to their top tube. It was nice. gold. Nice. Uh, so it gel- looks like a dinosaur, doesn't it, on the mm. beach, you know? So gel is around 20 to 30 grams of carbohydrate, usually a, a sort of in the mid-range of that amount, but it does vary from gel to gel. Uh, Cliff Bar is number two, and it gives you about 26 grams of carbohydrate. And Ems Bar is, which you're probably not going to see out on many races, but Ems Bar is 46 grams. But they're quite a bit bigger. So uh, I think a Cliff Bar is 50 grams in terms of its its size. And its there's weight. a chance you're going to see a Cliff Bar out on a race, isn't the, there? The much higher chance, yeah. especially an Ironman branded race. If you're coming down to Ironman New Zealand, I'm not sure if... M still does Ironman New Zealand, but I'm pretty sure she does Wanaka. Uh, they're, they're a bigger bar, and they're 40, about 46 grams of carbohydrate, but most people that are having M's bars are probably only going to have half at a time, not a, not a full bar in one hit. cookies? I haven't had an M's cookie in years. I love yeah, the M cookie. Yeah. She still does the cookies as well. The bars are a lot more practical when you're yeah. racing, but the cookies the cookies oh, are gold. They're gold. They're jo- always soft. Yes. You know, mm. the coconut in there. Yeah. Oh, John. Nice dark chocolate. Oh, I love an Ems cookie. You still doing any dark chocolate every day? Every day, mate. Yeah. yeah even One row. House. Was that? One row. I have five bits. Five bits. Yeah, five bits every night. For yeah. A big cup of tea. Yeah. Uh, what's up next, Joel? Uh, number, two, number three is chomps or shots. And again, all these numbers are actually about the same. 20 to, 20 yeah, to 30 grams of carbs if you have a whole pack. If you're just having one little tube of them, that's not going to give you too much. So that's 20 to 30 grams in one sort use of pack. Uh, and I don't use them in races, but I use them in training a bit sometimes when we're over in Kona and stuff, just for a bit of variety. They're, they're an expensive way to get carbohydrate, isn't it? Uh, I mean, actually, price them up. Maybe that's another high five I'll do, Bevan. Yeah, yeah, how, how, well, yeah in terms of paying per gram of carb, where, yeah, where are you best most efficient? Bank price some sugar. Um, <laughs> sports drinks, but this can be very hard. Next, it reminds me of I think my first Ironman, Ironman New Zealand, because I calculated the sports drink as a part of my calculation for my carbohydrate, mm. uh, but it was really watered down. Yeah, so I mean, and it was really watered down. So basically, I ended up blowing up, and I'm sure it was more than just my nutrition, but um, it was definitely a factor. So this can vary wildly. So you do you have to be very careful about your sports drink that you intake because it could vary from potentially as little as 20 grams in a bottle. You know, potentially all the way up to 60. I'd be very surprised if you got a concentration that was was higher than that in a um, on an on course nutrition, unless it was prepackaged. But I was thinking the other day as well, imagine in Kona, I know that they, sh- they in Kona they hand out the shittiest water bottles imaginable, um, they are just, Walmart. yeah they are, and they just crumple, they're absolutely hopeless, but when you do have, you know, your regular bike bottles, imagine how many bottles they'd have to fill up on the course at Ironman. Oh my God. You think, two, over 2,000 people racing at each aid station, you, what, you're going to have to have, you know. Three, three to four thousand water bottles, and then the same again in um, plastic, sports drink. I suppose you, you position them on the opposite side of the road so you can use them both directions on an out and back course. That's a lot of water bottles to fill up for somebody. Yeah, fair out. So sports drink can vary hugely. So that's probably the main area where you need to be careful. And then finally, bananas, twenty-three grams, uh, and that's based off a hundred gram banana. So all these nutrition products. With the exception of um, the Ems bar, which is a bit more, and the sports drinks, which is varied, but in terms of your your gels, your Cliff bars, your Chomps, and a banana, all about the same, sort of around about 23 to 25 grams of carbohydrates. So 
So that, that sort of gives you a, a starting point, but the responsibility now for you is to figure out actually what you need on an hourly basis, which can vary, again, that can vary wildly from some people maybe as low as 40 grams per ca- of carb per hour um, up to 90 grams, so quite a big variation. Have you ever lost in a big race, in a, in a long course race? Not in a long course race, I haven't lost my key nutrition. I've certainly dropped bits and pieces, you know, gels or um, caffeine tablets or things like that. Uh, And in my first ever Olympic distance race, when it was really, really hot, and I only had one drink bottle, I dropped that. That wasn't a pleasant experience. I didn't stop and pick that up. I was only about... 15 so uh learned the hard way on that one but yeah it would be a real issue if you if you if you are fueling on you know infinite or something like that and you drop it it's uh yeah, well, it it's gonna be difficult changer, it? okay that's uh this week's high five so john bo we're gonna have an interview coming up with nick baldwin who is a age group turn pro athlete and has just recently won his first ironman triathlon so here is nick right now Okay guys, um, we are happy to have another pro that a lot of you might have heard his name mentioned from time to time in passing, um, but he recently won Ironman Philippines, taking down the one and only Cameron Brown, uh, his name's Nick Baldwin. and Great finish on shot as well. Yeah, he's, he's from a variety of countries, so um, Nick, welcome to the show, maybe just tell us a bit about where you are actually from and, and where you're based now. Cheers, John. Yeah, great to have the chance to chat with uh, with you guys. Um, I'm from, uh, like you said, a bit, bit of a mixed background. So I was born in, in the UK and uh, grew up just outside of London for, uh, for the early years. And then um, my mother's from Seychelles. So we ended up going and living in Seychelles when I was a youngster as well. And then I went back to the UK to finish up uh, school and university. Went back to the Seychelles again. And now I find myself living in Perth, Australia. Why Perth? So that's a good question. I came, uh, I came over to Perth at the end of 2014 at first to do a structured swim squad for uh, a couple of months because swimming was always a weakness of mine. And as with many stories, I guess there was a, a girl involved and I met, uh, <laughs> met my trip and um, pretty much came straight back and then never left afterwards. Now, I, I know next to nothing about Seychelles. Just tell, tell us a little bit about Seychelles, where the hell it is, uh, how many people live there, and if it's a triathlon mecca at all. <laughs> no, not, definitely not a triathlon mecca. It's um, probably better, better known for uh, being uh, one of the nicer honeymoon destinations people could choose, I suppose. Um, so it's in the middle of the Indian Ocean, very, very small country. Um, so it's a group of islands. There's just over 100 islands that make up the Seychelles. And the population is approximately 90,000, so so very, very small country, um, and the islands themselves are very small as well. So when it comes to cycling especially, getting in the, in the long rides can be, can be pretty tricky over there. How did you get into triathlon in a place like that? Well, I got into triathlon when I was in my first year of university in the UK, okay. and um, that was really just, just by chance. I, um, I kind of stumbled across it and... I wasn't doing anything active at the time and thought that looked like a pretty exciting thing to, to have a crack at and, and started doing some training. And um, so it was really in the UK that I, that I first got started uh, in the sport. We'll get on to your sporting side of things in a moment, but do you get any, and I think you race under um, the Seychelles in terms of the country you represent. Um, is there any sports structure over there in terms of support for athletes? And are you like uh, Michael Jordan over there in terms of uh, winning a race and, and then you get much coverage? 
<laughs> I definitely wouldn't go that far. Uh, so Seychelles is um, they're really keen on their sport over there, which is brilliant. And there's a lot of uh, a lot of young athletes over there who are really talented, and um, you know, hopefully have the potential to take their their sports a long way. But the sports that are more popular over there are more your a- athletics, I suppose, and some of the team sports like volleyball, basketball. Um, Weightlifting is actually a very popular sport over there as well, boxing. So there's a few kind of, um, I suppose, more niche sports that are popular over there. Um, hopefully in the future, triathlon can be one of those and, and become more popular. And some of the local uh, people within the sports council over in Seychelles have been have been trying to kind of grow the sport and promote the sport a little bit. Um, and um, when I'm when I'm back over in Seychelles, I try my best to try and do a few things locally to, to help kind of um, promote triathlon and uh Show, showcase the sport a little bit and um, at least, you know, if, if I get a result that's half decent, thankfully the media are kind enough over there to, to give it a little bit of coverage, which is nice. Um, but uh, yeah, there's, there's a couple of young athletes over in Seychelles who have had the chance to, to meet with and they're, they're really keen on, on hopefully taking triathlon a little bit further, which, uh, which would be great. So in terms of your, your own progression, um, you know, you said you listened to the show, which is great because um, I'm often bemoaning the fact that pros uh, don't have much on their websites, but you've got your results listed all the way back to 2007, which is fantastic, and it's quite interesting seeing your progression through the age group ranks. Um, but where did you... 2008, you mean? Oh, seven. Oh, sorry, yeah, 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 there you yeah, go, yeah. 2007. Wow. Um, so you, you mentioned you, you got into triathlon um, when you were sort of doing your, your uni st- studies. So give us a bit of a background pre-triathlon and, and how you sort of progressed through those, those first um, few years of the sport. Yeah, sure. So I guess pre-triathlon, I I didn't really do anything. I suppose between about sixteen and eighteen years old, I was a bit um, bit of a lazy teenager, I suppose, around those years. But um, when I was in school, I always loved team sports and um, just being involved in, in any sport, regardless of what it was, whether it was football or you know hockey, rugby, um, crickets, uh, some of the individual sports like. Tennis I was really keen on. I enjoyed playing golf. I, I was just always a bit of a sports nut and just really enjoyed being outside. And um, any time we got to do anything active was always the highlight of my day. I, I definitely kind of saw myself more as an outdoor person than, than as an academic, really. And uh, so when I uh, found, I suppose, triathlon and um, realized what triathlon was and, and decided to, to pursue it, it really kind of gave me the avenue that um, that I've been looking forward to, to do something a little bit more challenging and something a bit more uh, more active. Um, and I suppose those those early years were pretty pretty funny looking back. I mean, we're going back quite a long time now. We're going back, uh, yeah, like you said, eleven years or so. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I remember really really clearly the first the first multi sport race that I did. It was a lot of your uh, listeners will know this one. It was Limington Triathlon in in the UK, and uh, it was a short short distance race, four hundred meter pool swim and I think I did the swim in about eight minutes and I had to stop halfway and hold on to the lane ropes and <laughs> make sure I wasn't going to drown. And um, it was uh, just a case of learning as, as I went, really. I didn't, I didn't know anybody else who did triathlon. None of my friends or, or family friends or anything like that had, had any involvement with the sport. So it was really a case of just trying to figure it out as I went along and um, listening to podcasts such as, such as yours kind of really helped give me a little bit of info and insight into um, some of the training and some of the equipment side of things. But I, I did that first uh, that first year of triathlon on a road bike. Um, I didn't I didn't even own a track pump. I just had a mini pump and I didn't know that you uh, had to pump your tires up to a certain PSI. So 
I probably did my whole season on about 25 PSI. <laughs> not, just, just out of ignorance, just not knowing that those kind of things mattered. Um, and I did in my, I think it was my first season, I did my, my first 70.3 in the UK and did it in a touch over six and a half hours, um, which is obviously probably pretty average, is fair to say. Um, so I definitely wouldn't say I've got, um, got a strong, strong pedigree in sport when it comes to, uh, to natural ability. Um, but it was really something that just straight away, as soon as I started doing it, I just realized that th this was for me, you know, this, this was something that, uh, was kind of giving me back so much straight away and, uh, and really made me want to pursue it as, as far as I could. So how did you advance yourself? You know, that's sort of 2000 and I don't know, 2006, 2007. Uh, and then by the time we roll around five years later, 2012, you know, you're winning, um, and placing at uh, Ironman World Champs at 70.3 and, and moving on. So it was a reasonably, reasonably rapid rise to the top for somebody with no sporting background. If you'd had a really strong background in one of the sports, you'd go, okay, fair enough. But um, you must have worked pretty hard in that sort of first um, five years to get, to get that high up that quickly. Yeah, I, I certainly did. I mean, uh, every year I would say I took it a little bit more seriously and, um, as I said, trying to managed to figure out the training side of things a little bit better and um, and become a bit more committed to it year on year. Um, and I suppose a, a turning point for me was when I graduated from university, I think that was 2010. And um, then kind of, I, I did business economics uh, and French. And when I graduated, I started going through the process of applying to these, um, these uh, graduate jobs in, in finance in London and um, as I was submitting the applications and sending them off, I was just thinking to myself, this really isn't what I wanted to do. And um, that was, I suppose, the turning point where I had to decide what it was or which path I wanted to go down and what it was that I wanted to pursue. And um, I pretty much at that point decided that I wanted to put a, a plan in place to to try and at least have a go at um, pursuing a you know professional career in the sport and to at least give myself the opportunity to see if I, I could be good enough to do that. So what I decided at that point was I actually um, moved back to the Seychelles and I went and started working uh, part-time as a personal trainer. And that really allowed me to, to pick up my training hours quite significantly in 2011. Um, and then the final year I raced age group was in 2012. And at that final age group year, I effectively, for the majority of the year, raced as a full-time age grouper. And lots of people don't don't like that um, because I think you know obviously age groupers should be should be working working athletes and it's obviously very unfair if you're essentially a full-time uh, professional but racing as an amateur but I think when you're when you're a young athlete and you're trying to break through there needs to be some kind of plan and process to, to making that happen and if I had simply jumped straight into to racing as a pro well, firstly, I don't think I'd have been able to get my pro license because I wasn't good enough. But also, that would have been reflected in the results. I mean, I'd have been absolutely nowhere at all racing against the, against the professionals. Um, and even as an amateur, I was still getting beaten by other amateurs in, um, in, that, in that final year in 2012. So I, I definitely wasn't, wasn't the best. There were still lots of other good amateurs uh, ahead of me. But um, that's kind of uh, full-time year in 2012 as an age group really gave me the opportunity to, I suppose, sample the pro-life a little bit before taking the jump. And 
also gave me confidence getting a, a few good results that um, that if I pursued it further and uh, on a full-time basis that that hopefully I could make it financially viable as a career and could make it work and hopefully at some point get some good results. So, so you get that moment and, you, and you've had a pretty, you know, you have had some pretty good success as an age grouper. What was what changed you? So you gave yourself a year of trialling and error. Then when you kind of make that switch, what was the plan when you made the switch to just go totally pro? Yeah, I, I don't know if there was much of a plan, to be honest. Um, <laughs> so I, um, I obviously, I took my pro licence after, um, at the end of 2012. And, and by that point, I kind of achieved what I hope I could as an age grouper. I, I, it's funny, looking back now, I realised how lucky I was in terms of, getting good luck in races and leading up to races um, and um, being in shape to to perform well at some of the key events. I, I managed to do do well in my age group at 70.3 Worlds and um, was quite consistent at Kona for a couple of years in the 18 to 24 age group too. And I think when I took that pro license and started racing pro, rather than there being a specific plan, it was more a case of let's just see how this goes and um, let's just kind of learn as we go again and um, and just try and try and improve you know as much as I could whilst um, whilst uh, we went through that first year I didn't think um, too much about it to be honest it was really I suppose just kind of at the end of each season that I'd kind of reassess and and kind of look back and think okay how's this going and what can we do moving forward but there wasn't too much of an overall overall plan not like a one of these five-year plans and 10-year plans or things like that what about financially you know like um you were personal training when you're an age grouper that bought you some income you know going to being a pro there's probably not much income coming in that first couple of years or maybe there was what financially how did it work yeah that's a really good question so um it's it's funny i, I guess we'll get the chance to touch on this a little bit more um but um, I was really lucky as an age grouper. I actually had some really good sponsors who who helped me. Um, one with my equipment, some some industry sponsors, but I also had some sponsors um, from non-endemic companies in the Seychelles who helped uh, finance some of the races that I did, especially some of the big international races. Um, and they also helped, <clears throat> excuse me, helped to finance a, a training camp that I did in in the states in 2012, leading into 70.3 Worlds and Ironman Worlds. And that's obviously really rare because there's not too many um, too many opportunities out there to, to get some cash from, from sponsors. And when I then took that jump and moved uh, into racing as a professional, I was able to build on those relationships that I had with my existing sponsors and also try and um, leverage then racing as a professional to try and get some additional sponsorship as well. So... Um, thankfully on the back of some good age group results and then going pro, I was able to get some, some half decent industry, um, contracts as well, which was really helpful, obviously. And, um, really I, I looking, looking back on it, really that first year as a pro in the first couple of years, I really was extremely fortunate because I know from talking to, to friends and other people, uh, on the racing scene that it's, it's really difficult for a lot of people and lots of people weren't. In the position that I I was in, where I had a little bit of a, basically a little bit of um, cash from some sponsors to to help finance everything, because if you're left to your own devices and you're not 
getting anything from from sponsors or you don't have any contracts in place and it can be really really challenging obviously and really limits your um capacity to to do things like training camps and travel to certain races so i, I was really fortunate definitely what, what do you what do you try to sell when you when you go into a sponsor and spe- especially a non-endemic sponsor you know how, how are you actually trying to get them on board from is, is it sort of marketing say shells or is it um do you go over there and, and do stuff with um with their clients or are they just happy to be supporting somebody who's um you know say shells local yeah, so a little bit of all, all of those things, I suppose. So I think firstly, you've got to obviously try and um, show that there's some kind of return on their investment. But I recognize that my situation is a little bit different being from Seychelles and being what essentially is the only professional triathlete from the Seychelles, obviously, is, is very different to being one of the major countries and being one of hundreds or, or thousands of professional triathletes who are vying for, for sponsorship opportunities. And um, I suppose in in that regard, it's it's very different. And I very much also try and promote the fact that I am an ambassador for Seychelles when I'm racing and kind of flying the Seychelles flag and promoting high-level sports for the country. And a lot of my sponsors um, as individuals are, are really, really keen on sport. And so we have something in common and, the way, you know, it's something that they can relate to, even if they themselves haven't done triathlon or don't have personal experience experience of what Ironman is, they can still appreciate and understand the the difficulty of the sport and the challenges that are associated with it. So so that's definitely an aspect of it as well. Um, but I was actually previously also a, a tourism ambassador for the Seychelles as well. So my racing is very much tied in with trying to, to promote Seychelles uh, as a destination as well um, for tourism purposes. So things like that help, I think. And um, uh, But as I said, I, I completely appreciate and realize that it is a little bit unique to um sort of situation a lot of people would would find themselves in mm. now in, in terms of your athletic development since you've sort of switched over from being you know top age grouper to pro you've obviously this year you've won your first race but has your you know athletic performance improved at a sort of a consistent level has it sort of plateaued and just sort of go race from season to season how's your how's your you know your athletic performance changed um between 2012 and now yeah i would say um to be honest i probably had a pretty big jump going to pro in the first couple of years and then the progression continued more moderately for a couple of seasons and then stagnated um or if anything maybe declined a little bit and so this past year or so i've been trying to kind of get back on on top of that and trying to um to get back uh to to basically making some some progress in training and racing it's definitely um you said you're having a look through my results earlier you'll definitely see a couple of years where where the results were very very inconsistent um it's funny as, as an age group i used to pride myself on on being consistent when I race and uh, and I was very lucky that as I mentioned before I think I, I didn't really have any any uh, dramas in any of my age group events that, that I did and uh, everything went pretty smoothly no no mechanicals no injuries no um, no no anything to kind of get in my way of, of racing and trying to to execute what I, what I was trying to do and um, I think when you depending on how you want to race in a professional field, obviously it's, it's very, very different. If you take that conservative age group approach to professional racing, I just don't think it's gonna fly in most of the races. Um, just not gonna be in the race from, from an early position. 
that's not to say that you can't go out there and do your own thing and, and have a steady day and kind of make your way through the field towards the end as, as people are, are struggling. But I think if you really want to be involved in the race from the get-go, you need to basically try, basically forget everything that you knew about steady age group racing because racing tactically with, um, with some of the faster guys is, is pretty much suffering from the get-go. You know, the, the swim, the pace is on, the, the bike early stages are just ridiculous. It's, it's sometimes worse than, than a half. And um, it's, tactically, it's just not sensible at all the way that, <laughs> that um, some of the professionals, we, we race each other in an Ironman. And um, I've, I've tried to, to go with those plenty, plenty of times, and it normally ends up backfiring. So you'd have thought I'd have learned my lesson by now, but <laughs> some, somehow it's happened. Um, but um, the, the truth is that it's, it's really exciting. I, I love tactically how exciting Ironman racing can be. And that, that probably sounds pretty weird because you think, well, how can a, an eight, nine hour race be tactical in the least? Surely it's just a case of going out there and basically getting from A to B as fast as you can. But it, it, couldn't, be, it couldn't be more different. I think if you really want to, want to be part of that race and you just need to be able to be willing to go with the moves that people make. And now that Ironman seems to have more and more people from a short course background racing in a professional field, I think that the uh, the volatility of, of pacing is, is just getting kind of harder and harder each year. And um, some of the guys are just able to, to really mix up the pace very, very well and, and um, not suffer for it. But I seem to just implode any time I get close to the threshold on an Ironman, even if it's for a couple of minutes. <laughs> uh, like I said, it's a completely, completely stupid way of racing. Makes no sense whatsoever. But at the end of the day, sometimes you've got to be in it to win it. And if you don't give yourself the chance of, of being in the race and, and, like I said, following those moves and kind of responding to what other people are doing, then you may as well just accept that you're going to be um, – competing for you know the, the more minor placings so i always well not always but more recently have kind of looked at it from the perspective that i'd be willing to to risk uh an average placing to maybe hopefully have uh have the opportunity to, to fight for one of the podium spots and uh like i said it, it rarely has worked for me <laughs> You have had a few DNFs. What's your approach? And is, if it is a tactical decision, because obviously you're a pro, it's different. Uh, emotionally, how do you deal with the DNF? Yeah, that's a, um, that's a good question. So I suppose there haven't been too many races where I've actually made a tactical decision to DNF. Uh, off the top of my head, I've probably had in the last three, four years or so, I guess at least five DNFs in, in Ironmans. Um, and I can only think that one of them was, I suppose, a tactical decision. Um, and other than that, there's been a few uh, either terrible pacing errors from myself, which have led to blowing up very, very early on in, in the event, um, or uh, a couple of mechanicals which have um, kind of hindered me. But um, yeah, the, the first DNF I had actually was a tactical decision. And um, I, uh, I went into the race knowing I was going to uh, pull out of the run within a couple of Ks. And I did exactly that. I ran three Ks, stepped off the side of the course and was completely fine with it at the time. And then afterwards, the, the feeling of having done that didn't really sit very well with me. And it actually bothered me quite a bit more than, than I thought it would. Oh, really? And that was really kind of quite, quite strange and eye-opening because I went into that race not having done really any run training and um 
And I was always prepared that that was the plan. I'll get a good swim bike out of it and just step off the course. But as that was my first DNF, I think in a, in a strange way, looking back, that might have almost kind of set a precedent. Um, and if I could have my time again, I would have decided probably not to race that event and uh, not go into it knowing that I was going to DNF because I don't think that that's a very, um, that's a very good thing to do in hindsight. I think it did set a bit of a precedent for me. But um, in terms of how I deal with, with those DNFs, it's, it's really hard. I'm probably someone who um, takes almost to heart the results that I get from racing, um, especially if they're negative um, and a bit of a, a disappointment. So sometimes the DNFs are pretty, pretty kind of hard to swallow. And um, it's, you know, especially when you feel like you've gone into a race and you had high hopes or high expectations um, and you see it kind of unravel and, and, I suppose, go in a direction that you didn't even foresee because I, I, just, I always say I'm, I'm a very realistic athlete, but I'm also um, optimistic at the same time. I, I always like to see the opportunity in races rather than kind of think about what possibly could go wrong or what, how things might, might uh, go badly. And um, when things then do go badly and you haven't considered those possibilities or those outcomes it can be really really challenging i've had some real real low points after races where i've really been very disappointed and that that disappointment has lingered for a long time and i've taken it away with me kind of into training and just into normal life and and not dealt with it very well um and there's definitely been times where it's, it's been enough to make me consider whether I wanted to continue. Uh, so for, for example, I did last year Ironman Maastricht in, in the Netherlands, and um, I, was, I was actually hoping to, to get kind of qualification points late in, in that qualifying season, and I needed a good result to, to, get, uh, to get the points I needed. And um, had one of those races where, like I was saying earlier, I'd, I'd be willing to uh, have a risky strategy to, to hopefully do well. And so I went through 100Ks on the bike like, like an absolute idiot, um, smashed myself completely and basically soft-pedaled all the way home and walked the majority of, of the marathon. And um, the only reason I finished that year was because I was actually on the back of a couple of DNFs. And um, I, I said to myself, I, I can't not finish another one. I'd, I'd rather walk it in. And I remember as I was getting kind of into that last five kilometers or so, um, getting getting close to the finish line, I was almost I was almost kind of choking up and getting getting really emotional because I, over the course of that that back half of the run, I convinced myself that I'd never do this to myself again. I said this is just too hard to to go through. You know, every time things go badly, the the disappointment that that comes with racing is so um, so kind of immense and extreme when you put everything everything into performing well. And uh, and as I said, I convinced myself that this would be the last time and finish line I'd ever ever go down, and that that made me really emotional and really upset. And um, of course, after a while, the dust settles, and you think, now stuff that I'm going to go again and and put it right. And and I did obviously, but um, at the time, it's it's pretty tough. You know, there's um, there's definitely times where where it does make you question whether it's worth it. Now, now it is six o'clock in the morning over there for you for you over in Perth. But that isn't your tummy rumbling, is it? In the background, <laughs> if you can hear background uh, background noise, we've got a little uh, a little Jack Russell pup, and he is extremely needy. So he's um, he's <laughs> in my direction at the moment and wondering why I'm not taking him running. Probably. 
just, just, you know, like you've had some good, you know, you you got some good podiums in your career, you know, and, and obviously this kind of roller coaster journey of being a pro. What was it like to to finally win an Ironman? Yeah, really um, indescribable, I suppose. It, I still, I mean, I think we're we're coming up to six or seven weeks after the race now, and I still don't really know if it's sunk in, to be honest. Um, I, I remember really vividly the first Ironman that I ever did, which was uh, Ironman Switzerland in 2008. And I remember treading water before the start and just thinking to myself, I, I don't know if I can do this. Um, and that was really exciting at the time. And obviously, once you finish your first, then you know you can, you can do an Ironman and you know you can finish. And so then the question becomes, okay, well, how fast can I do it? And, you know, it was really only once I turned professional that I ever even wondered what it might be like or if it might be possible to ever win an Ironman race. And obviously, as a, as a pro, that's everyone's goal um, when, they, when they get started into the sport. And to, to have it come together kind of eventually, and I think even more so after lots of um, lots of kind of bad experiences where things have gone wrong. Um, really, it's just, yeah, very, very hard. It's very hard to describe because the the emotion um, that comes with with achieving that obviously isn't just kind of the emotion that you get from the day and from the moment itself. It's kind of pent up over over years and years of of training and and trying and experiences that you've gone through. And um, so when it when it all did come together on the day. Um, I remember kind of I, with about two kilometers to go, I knew that, that it was, it was safe. I, I didn't feel like I was going to, um, to collapse before the line. And, um, so I kind of got there and I was pretty cool and calm and collected until the last, uh, the last hundred, hundred meters or so. And I saw my fiance and, and then, then just, uh, you know, the waterworks started and, um, it's just, yeah, just unbelievable. Just so, so hard to describe. Just, uh, and I think anyone who's seen the photos will, um, be able to see how much it meant to me. It was really a really really cool experience. Yeah, pretty special. It's been pretty so, what does the um, what does the future look like now? You know, are you training and racing a hundred percent full time, or what's sort of going on with with life as well as um, racing? And um, what are your sort of plans now? You've won one. Are you going to you know try to make it to Kona, or are you, what does sort of the future look like? Yeah, so I suppose in, for the rest of this year, I'm going to continue doing a little bit of racing. Um, I'm actually planning on racing Copenhagen next month, which uh, which will be good fun. I've got good memories there. I, I did my first, uh, well, I had my first good professional race in Copenhagen five years ago. And um, so I'm hoping to go to go back there and uh, see if I can get a, another decent result. That would be really great. And um, I suppose beyond that, in for triathlon, again, I, I still don't have a longer-term plan with the sport. Obviously, once you once I'm, you're kind of settled in the sport like I am now, you want to keep going and keep progressing as much as you can. And I mean, I, I turn uh, I turn thirty next next week. So I'm hoping that as soon as I hit that thirty, I'm going to be peaking like uh, like everyone else is in their thirties. Um, but uh, you know, I always said if I could stick it out uh, until my mid thirties, then hopefully, you know, those years will will start to, um, you know, all the experience will start to accumulate, and uh, hopefully, I'll be able to have some good years there. So, you know, who, but who knows? Five years is a long way down the line. I, I'd like to continue racing as long as I can, um, as long as I'm fit and healthy to do so, and enjoying it, obviously. Um, but uh, there's there's no kind of grand ego's plan. Obviously, I I just want to go to races that I enjoy and um, and try and be competitive, uh, which is really 
still difficult to do because year on year it, it gets it gets harder and harder to um, to be competitive at these events. I don't know what it, kind of how it looks for people on the outside, kind of looking in at these events. I suppose because you see the top guys, and you know it's it's pretty rare that the, the very top athletes within the sport uh, kind of change around too much. But I can tell you from from being involved in the sport that the the depth in that middle ground within the professional field just just kind of gets bigger and bigger year on year, and it gets harder and harder to to go to you know these events and uh, and get a good result out of it. And a lot of the guys now are just they're you know they're super motivated, young and hungry, and um, you know it's it's difficult. It's it's not easy to um, to get some you know some good racing and good results out of out of the uh, the events. Um, but uh, outside of racing, um, probably working, I don't know, I haven't counted it at the moment, but maybe somewhere around 25-ish hours a week at the moment now. Uh, my fiance and I have actually started a business um, recently in the last six months, so that's taken up quite a bit of time and there's been a new, a new adjustment um, for, for me especially, having gone from full-time training and racing. Um, but she's a physiotherapist, so we've opened a small small business opening, um, sorry, offering physiotherapy services. And um, she's also a bit of a, a specialist in the strength and conditioning field for, for uh, uh, endurance athletes. She's currently doing her PhD uh, in uh, strength training in long distance triathletes and examining its, uh, its effects on injury prevention and uh, performance so it's the first study of its kind so it's pretty exciting we have to get her on and, uh, i was gonna say we have to get her on the show yeah yeah you would yeah i tell you, should be um she'd love to talk about it so so we we're really lucky we work with a lot of the uh, a lot of athletes in and around perth and uh especially triathletes obviously but also long distance runners swimmers cyclists and um so that's really you know really cool we get to work with endurance athletes on a daily basis which i love um, I've always, I've always, always known that I wanted to be involved in sport. You know, going back to when I was in school, the only thing I knew was that I didn't want an office job. I didn't know what it was that I particularly did want to do, but I knew I didn't want that uh, that kind of typical nine to five. And you know, we're hoping to kind of build um, build the kind of a kind of business that um, allows us to do something that we both really enjoy. And um, and uh, so you know, so far we're we're really enjoying it, and it's um, it's good fun and really nice to help other athletes kind of achieve their goals and um and be part of their journeys to, to hopefully doing well at their events so in terms of a plug for your for your local business there any western australians listening what's the, what's the name of your business <laughs> yeah we're called endurance movement and uh based just south uh, south of the city in perth fantastic right so we've got a few regular questions that you may be familiar with and there's a couple that are sort of newish um if you're on a start line and you would have experienced this i'm sure lining up against someone who's had a had a positive drugs test um sometimes asking these questions in july is always kind of ironic um but uh how do you sort of feel about lining up against somebody who's served their time yeah i have been in that position and it's it's pretty awkward um it's it's not a nice position at all. I I would say I'm pretty um, well. I don't know what how, how do you say. I'm obviously like uh, I think everyone would say 100% anti anti um, doping, but I think you've got. To, I think if people are going to get lifetime bans, there has to be 100% certainty and 100 and um, no doubt, obviously whatsoever that um, that doping has taken place and. In those instances, 
yeah, lifetime ban has to be the only option because it's just simply not fair for um, for the clean athletes to have to compete against um, against people in in those situations. I think it's um, yeah, just it's just outrageous to be honest. So it's 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 a really difficult situation when you're you're then racing against them and then when they beat you, <laughs> as happened with me, it's uh, it's uh, you know even more of a kick in the gut. So um, yeah, it, it's it's just not good all around. It's it's no good for anybody. No good for anybody. So nutrition wise, what's your race morning breakfast uh, and your what do you eat post race? So I've probably tried every breakfast that's possible before an Ironman. Uh, the first one I ever did, I remember having 12 slices of bread with jam. Um, and I've gone from that to trying bacon and eggs. I've tried porridge. I've tried, you know, all sorts, basically. But I think I've kind of settled on um, a lighter-ish breakfast, somewhere between around six to 800 calories. And it's normally something simple like a bagel with some honey or cream cheese or you know, a little bit of peanut butter and coffee and um, uh, something like that. So nothing flash these days, nothing flash. Do you wax or shave? Shave. The pain of waxing is just not worth it, ever. <laughs> uh, any facial moisturizer products? He's got baby face. We saw that. He doesn't need it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we're quite lucky in Perth, actually. There's not too much need for moisturizer over here. So not recently, but if I was in the UK, then yes. And finally, if you were to run a fresh open marathon, um, or if you've done one, um, what time do you think you might be able to crank out for a fresh marathon? If you train properly for it. Yeah, well, I have done one, and um, I did one earlier this year. I, was, I did the Seychelles Marathon, which is actually one of the kind of highlight sporting events um, in the calendar in Seychelles. And I, I gave myself 10 weeks after, after a little bit of a break, and my goal was to run about a 2.36 um, on what was quite a a hilly rolling course in obviously pretty um hot and humid conditions and um and i went out there and stuck to my pacing perfectly for about 14 k's and then blew completely so (laughs) i had a a really uh, a really um i suppose uh tough first marathon experience and um i think i went through the first half in about one 18 and then the second half in about 127 so yeah. um it was um wait 127 one 137 sorry yeah. so it was a terrible terrible um terribly executed race um but i'd hope if i was racing um flatter and cooler conditions and then, then hopefully somewhere there or thereabouts like mid 230s maybe just over Fantastic. Oh, we look forward to seeing your progress over the coming months and years. Guys, if you want to check out Nick, Nick go to nick-baldwin.com um, because he is one of the athletes that's got all his results up there. You can see how he's progressed from 2007 through to 2018. Uh, so, Nick, all the best for the rest of your season. We'll look forward to uh, seeing how you crank things over there in Copenhagen. Thanks, guys. Appreciate that very much. Yeah, nice to chat to you. Thanks, mate. You're a star. Cheers. Uh, we haven't actually done the interview based on now. You guys have just listened to it. I know it's the magic of podcasting, so we'll talk about you. We won't give it a bit of an update. But, John, let's get into Wanger of the Week. Wanger of the Week this week. Uh, Adam Wilson did 29 hours and 17 minutes off 15 activities. So nice work, Adam. He is from Arrowtown, New Zealand. Nice. Nice. It's been a bit of time in Arrowtown because the sister-in-law lives down there. But he's got pictures of him from, um, all over in France. and uh, well, nice, Jan and Joel. Small there you go, middle of winter, and he's doing that. If he is, that, in fact, I've even been to the Arrowtown. No, school. he's over in France. There you uh, go. That's why. 
Yesterday he was biking around Annecy. He's obviously doing a bit of Tour de Franceing because uh, Tour de France was there a couple of weeks Are ago. You the tour? Uh, it's good, and he I think he must work at Outside Sports, and he's done a bit of swimming over there in France. Done a bit of hiking. There you go. Are you loving the tour? Tour's good. Yes, very predictable. Nice. Sorry, is it predictable? Is there a chance for him can't win? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we're recording this the day before they hit the Pyrenees, so they're on a rest day today. Uh, so, yeah, there's an outside chance that his teammate could hang in there. He hasn't shown his cracks yet. But his teammate, oh, so it's his teammate who can beat him? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. really? So oh, uh, I wonder what that's like in the, in the bus. Hmm. Froome's still the boss, but anything could happen at this stage. What happens in that situation? Because I know in Formula 1, often they'll say to the driver, look, you have to go to second, you know, like... Well, Froome's going to have to attack and drop him, which is, um, but he's still regarded as the team leader. So I don't think it's 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 in the past. It's been different when you've had the guy who's been second has actually been better than the guy that's in first. Which is, um, but the guy in first is the established guy. So like uh. when Froome was coming through, when Wiggins was leading, Wiggins was a team leader, but Froome was actually in better shape. And you've had similar things with with Jan Ulrich and Bianca Reese, um, when the second place was actually better than the first, but team orders sort of came through but in this case at the end of the day the team just wants to win so I'm not quite sure how it's going to pan out but I'd imagine that Froome will uh, attack on one of the climbs in the coming days and uh, but he's got to gain a minute and a half uh, and there'll be a time trial as well but the other guy time trial as well so well, how many more days is left uh, there's only a couple of days of decent racing Oh, wow, so it's all good. Mm. Okay, uh, Jombo, let me have a look at notes here. Questions and answers. Questions and, and answers. answers. We have none, but I, have, I do have one, <laughs> an email from someone. Just from Joe Aragon Spragans. I uh, just want to say thanks for all the entertainment over the past few years. What you guys do is superb. After constantly chipping away, I finally punched my ticket to the big island this weekend, in qualifying at Ironman UK, despite being hit by a car. Oh, Mid at the race. mile 60 on the bike course riding yeah. at 25 miles an hour I did notice when I was watching a tiny bit of coverage that there was this little section where they came out onto this road where it was coned off but I did see a couple of cars on there which as long as you warn people but if you don't warn people there's going to be cars on the course that can uh, that can give you a bit of a shock it made me think of a discussion we are super stoked that I'll be coming out uh, on a year when you guys are also there so I look forward to getting involved with all the race week shenanigans so well done Joe for that I reckon there's a discussion of the week there and maybe you should take note of this before next week but it's um, what is the biggest adversity someone has overcome to qualify for Kona because a car crash now uh, obviously it wasn't terrible well, Brett, Brett, why, Chan, if you're listening, you've got to send through the one that you were telling me about and wrote. Okay. That trumps, this, is, this will trump everything. Oh, really? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I want you to know, but I know you can't talk about it on the show because we're on Brett's yeah. time in the sun. Um, but, okay, well, make that discussion for next week. What's the biggest adversity someone's overcome to qualify for Kona? Because I've got to say, Joe Spriggins, Joe Aragon Spriggins, mm-hmm. uh, he's got to be up there. Okay. Getting hit by a car. Comes back, pushes through, brings out his inner mongrel because he's angry at the car driver. Qualifies. You're running it down. I'm just putting that in the next week's show notes. Control E or Command S. It's saved. Good. Well done. I'll see that here because we share a Dropbox folder, John and I do. That's who we are. We share a Dropbox folder. Uh, So that's pretty much uh, this week's questions and answers. But we do want to talk about some patrons. John, you go first. Philip, the black jacket killy coat. We've got... Scott, the growler, Worsley. And Brendan, the teacher, 
Shuli. 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 Uh, if you want to be a patron of the show, go to www.imtalk.me. It's all very clear on our website. Uh, you can also uh, become a patron and you get some benefits like a nickname, like it going into the drawer. And depending on, on the level that you become a patron of, there are gifts based on that. Uh, Swimcap, if you come in at $10, and if you come in at 20 bucks a month, which is only like coffee a week, you also get a quality beanie. Uh, icebreaker beanie, merino, New Zealand yeah, I wool. I found mine when I, was, um, when I was packing. I thought I lost it. Nice. I was happy with that because I have my icebreaker beanie. Nice. And the other thing to remember, and someone said this to me, and I thought it was really cool, was that this show has definitely helped their triathlon experience mm-hmm. um, through some, you know, some of the interviews, some of the stuff we shared over the years. And a coffee a week is a pretty fair deal for something that's a big part of your triathlon world. So yeah. for those who are patrons, thank you very much. For those who aren't, maybe that coffee a week would be kind of cool to support us. John, our sponsors. Extreme Endurance. Your Lactic Buffer. And our patrons. And again, just be a supporter of the show. If you want to email us, you can email us at imtalkpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to get the show emailed to you each week when I release the show, just go to www.imtalk.me and you'll see there's a link to um, get it. There's a way you can sign up to get it emailed to you. And each week when I release the show, just forget an email and it's an easy way to get the show to you when you know it's come. John, your goss. What's my goss? I had my running race at the okay, weekend. So Im- give, me, give me the details. Improved performance. Don't know if I improved actually that much on the scoreboard, I was, but overall... Definitely got that mongrel a bit more. Didn't give up. Cross-country racing's great. I keep saying this each time. I've, I haven't actually really done the full cross-country season before. And so this was, you know, four laps of two two kilometres. Bit of hill, bit of a bit of an incline each way. Muddy as shit everywhere. Had to do uh, two river crossings each um, lap. And the river, well, not river crossing, but stream crossing. Yep. It was just that teensy bit too wide uh, that for little short asses like me... You couldn't do the leap. Couldn't quite hurdle it. You uh. could... But I did hurdle on my first slap and almost hyperextended my knee backwards uh, and thought that was a bit of a stupid idea. Uh, so I took it a bit more gingerly through. How are your knees? My knees are fine. No, no, but it's like the same. Like, my knees are great. And I bounce up and down every mm. day of my life. Mm. And I'm coming up 41, John. Yeah. And uh, touch wood because I'm glad that I've got good knees because so many people get bad knees. It's nice yeah. to have good knees. My knees are absolutely fine. My calves are the only area which gives me, you know, I just need to look after them a bit more. Um, so fun doing a bit of a race. Got a bit of a mongrel in there. Gave it a good good effort. Give myself about an 8 out of 10. Looking for that sort of t- edging towards 9 in the next couple of races. Uh, so Where'd you place? Um, well, I got third in my age group and that doesn't mean that much but i, I I don't know. I wasn't really too concerned about places. How many people do that race? The thing is, on the start line, you have lots of juniors and seniors doing different distances yeah, and stuff. How many together? Oh, and in the men's race, maybe 70, maybe something who, like that. Who won the whole thing? You know what? I don't actually know. Oh. <laughs> There's time in the sun, John. This is an international. Yeah. Thousands of people in over 100 countries. No. No. Don't know. Give them the love. So... Just a bunch of old fogies running the events, but they do a good job of, of marking it all out and doing it. Um, but just some bit of music or something and would, would so the, rush the, it up. the problem with the older guys and girls is they're great because you need them, 
but they get but can you get stuck in there? Oh, this, this was a funny part. Like this, it's it's the Canterbury Champions. It's our regional championships, and and they're, they're sticklers for rules. Yep. And, and so they have this fire hose that sort of that's your start, like a squash down fire hose. That's your start line. Yep. And it's cross country race. It's it's held a skelter when yep. you when you go. It's all boom. It's off. And so when they start you, you know you got to you got to be a meter behind the line, and then it's on your marks, and then a gun will set you off. And the racing is not decided by split seconds at this event. Now, wait a second. Did someone do the John Newsom swim start on the run start? I didn't see it, but it was false start. So, like most people on there, a bit like me, it's the not the A race of the season. Yeah. You're just going out there. You want to have a good hard run, and the start's really not going to decide the race. It's a false start. Oh, really? Boom, boom. And everybody's like, what the hell? <laughs> and all you can hear is just this echoing of um, everybody resetting their watches. Oh, really? <laughs> mm. So that was good time. Did so they get disqualified? If somebody had done it again, they would have done. Yeah. And you're like, oh, this is a cross-country race. It's going to take 30 to 40 minutes. Uh, and you're false starting to get a 10-centimetre head start. Rules are rules. Yeah. So it was good times. Got the first round of the JD duathlons coming up this weekend. I've just checked my weather forecast. And the week was, every day this week, supposed to be sunny. Uh, or it's supposed to be you know, dry, except for Sunday, which is supposed to be uh. rain. But it's just cleared up now. And it's saying partly cloudy with light winds. So if you're yeah, in it's Christchurch, long range, Sean. get on it. So that's going to be good times. and good weather on the weekend, oh, it's been outstanding. Oh. Yeah, outstanding. So that, Bevan, watching a couple of things on Netflix. Have you watched Dark Tourist? Dark Tourist no, I saw it by on David Farrier. He's a Kiwi sort of comedian guy. It's worth a watch. He it's went a Kiwi, Kiwi guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. He went... Uh, he was the guy who also did the Tickling documentary, which I've never oh, actually watched. What's his name? David yeah, Farrier. David Farrier. Um, but he basically goes to really odd places. He went to... Um, see Pablo Escobar's little hometown. And yesterday he went to Fukushima, um, and uh, and checked that out. That was uh, that was know. fairly grim. Really. So yeah, we uh, we think we go on about our earthquakes in Christchurch, which we're bad. Um, but that Fukushima one. So is it, is it like tourism for bad places? Yeah, yeah. Oh really? And he went to that forest next to Mount Fuji, where lots of people go and commit suicide. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Interesting. Mm. Wouldn't give it a ten star or anything, but it's worth a watch. What else have you been watching on Netflix? Was something else? What did we watch the other day? Do you watch Parks and Recreation? We've been watching that. It's quite fun. No, no. Up in middle class, Bogan. No, jeez, I've never heard of that as well. That's quite good? funny. That's yeah, Aussie comedy. That's quite funny. Oh yeah, check that out. There you go. John, John's giving me the pop culture update. Yeah, Bevan, what's happening in your world other than well, moving houses? Well, it's just been moving houses, John. And mm. I tell you one thing: lawyers <laughs> can sharpen up. <laughs> So uh, last week it was all about the move, uh, and luckily my wife's a bloody legend, so everything was planned. And and Joe likes to be organised, yeah. And she really wanted to be out of the house as early as possible, mm-hmm. and so we did. We took every bloody box that could be took. We took everything possible to make sure that we could get out of our house ASAP and get mm-hmm. into this house. And we also did it that we could leave our old house a day earlier. Mm-hmm. So we left Hackthorn on the um the thursday mm-hmm. and then we you know the new people didn't move in until the friday so it gave us a bit of time so we get up thursday morning everything's pretty much done we go i go and hire the truck go pick up the truck do i like driving a truck john 
down your old driveway, bloody hell, that would have been a challenge. Yeah, it wasn't the biggest truck. But yeah, yeah, it was still, I definitely, I definitely did a bit trimming of the trees for everyone. So it was good. <laughs> uh, left, left them with a you know nice clear driveway. Um, but you know, definitely like driving a truck. There's just something about driving a truck it makes you feel like a man, it doesn't it? Yeah. You know, you've got that truck. You, you always wave to all the other truckies. Yeah. Now, admittedly, they're in the big rigs, but I still. Yeah. Like okay, there's a little yeah. pee, yeah. little <laughs> pee wee <laughs> over I, there. Yeah. Yeah. This one can be a toot. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, so we, we, we pick up the truck first, the first. Now, the good thing is the house is a new house. It's only 500 metres away. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't leave the truck in the driveway once we picked it up. So I thought, oh, I'll just put it on the road. And I thought, back it up. Just drive around the corner. <laughs> so I drove around the corner and walked back. And then that we probably picked the first load by 10. And we're thinking, hopefully we'll be in 1 o'clock. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll get the key and we can just mm-hmm. get in and get, you know, get everything done, dusted. Well, we didn't get key till 5 o'clock, John. So it was all go from there. Luckily, we had lots of help. So basically, Thursday was just getting shit out of the old house. So mm-hmm. we we left Thursday night and it was done. And then, so we slept in here actually on, on, on the, in the new studios mm-hmm. and, uh, on uh, Thursday night. Enough said. Yep. And then, uh, and then we've just been kind of unpacking and stuff. And then, so yeah, that's pretty much it really. My life has just been about a house in the last three days. Fantastic. And you know what? You just got to learn to live in a new house. Mm-hmm. Because when was the last time you moved? 2009. Yeah, so it's funny. Uh, you just got to l- learn, where's my toothbrush? You know, like all those little things you've just got to figure out in your new house. That's a wardrobe, not a toilet, when you wake up in the middle of the night. Yeah, well, I haven't done that one yet. Yeah. Yeah, thankfully. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, do you go to the toilet in the middle of the night? Sometimes. I'm, I'm, not, not often, but sometimes. No. I think when you get old, you've got to do it all the time, don't you? Who are you calling old? I'm just saying you're nearly 43. <laughs> um, are you 43? No, I'm 42. Oh. Another year. You've just said you moved, haven't you? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, you just, it's funny when you're, when you're in a new home and you really don't know how to live in your house yet. And even little things like our cupboards, the things we've got to move around because, mm-hmm. you know. So, but, you know, loving it, new house, and uh, yeah, that's pretty much my life right now. Right, we're going to go get our Legends show ready to go up and then we've got to go do that interview. Okay, here we go. Let's wrap it up. I'm Russ. I'm Indo. Train hard. Train smart.